Blog Talk Radio. All right, guys. Good afternoon. I'm so glad. I'm hoping you guys are joining us live. Um, I have my good friend Michelle Madden on. Um, I had the privilege, actually, of interviewing her before. I'm actually doing two podcasts secretly. You guys don't know that. But there's another project coming out, which hopefully I will be able to share with you. It's not really a secret, but it's not fully developed. So as soon as it gets um, all put together, I'll be able to share it with you guys. Um, But for now, I do have this lovely blog talk radio and this lovely little program here. But anyway... So um, Michelle is joining me um, today, and I'll read you a little snippet Um, for those of you who don't know Michelle. uh, She was born in 1967, so was I. That makes us so young. But anyway, (laughs) Michelle was born to a young woman who was flown in from France to the U.S. to have her baby, and Michelle was relinquished and adopted privately in Chicago through to a doctor caring for her parents' um, terminally ill child after a rocky start. Um, Michelle was reunited 22 years ago after losing two boys to a genetic disorder she did not know um, she carried. Currently, she hopes to connect with members of her deceased birth father's family. She lives in Delaware with her husband of 27 years, two children, and her beloved dachshund. Thanks, Michelle, for joining me actually again, but now everybody gets to hear you on my blog talk, so thanks for coming and joining me. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. I'm so glad you're on. So I know we've gotten a chance to talk, but I wanted you to tell everybody, you know, I mean, we didn't get a chance to go into it too much, I felt like, on the other show. But I want you to tell everybody, and I know it's it's really it's really deep. I want you to tell everybody a little bit, as much as you want to, about, sure. Um, you know, we don't have our medical history, and so we as women, and I know male adoptees have this too, but we as females carrying babies, this is a huge thing. And, you know, for you, as much as you want to go into this, and this is what starts really your reunion, so um, it's it's a big deal. And, you know, I... I don't know how you made it through it, but I know you were just kind of in the throes of it, so you didn't have a choice. But yeah. that kind of starts how your reunion goes, so I don't know if you want to kind of tell people that's how sure. your reunion Yeah. Sure. Um, well, a year after I got married, I when we started talking about having kids, I thought, I, I really, like, I, don't, I would like some information because I don't know boo. So I <clears throat> wrote to Chicago and did get my non-identifying information from Cook County. And it obviously didn't have a whole lot. Um, the one thing that was very interesting was um, I, I've told some people, so I'll, I'll share it here. When I was about 10 years old, I was walking down the street in my neighborhood, and I heard, 9 or 10, I heard someone speaking a foreign language coming out of the window. It was summertime, and the windows in the house were open, and we had new neighbors. And I heard this foreign language, and I stopped dead in the middle of the sidewalk and was like, I know this. I know this. You know, Dad, that feeling like dead on your bones? And I mm-hmm. ran home, I think it was headed to the park, I ran home and I said to my mother, my birth mother, friend, what, what, what language is that? Who, who moved in? Was that, what language was that lady speaking? And my mom said, well, I think she's French. And I said, was, was the woman who gave birth to me French? Because I, I feel like I am down in my bones. It was just a weird moment in my life. And lo and behold, <clears throat> when I got the non-identifying information, she is French. 
Wow. So um, it didn't have a lot of medical history. It just talked, I think she had had a father who had had a kidney removed, and that was about it. But um, so in uh, 1993, I, well, yeah, I got pregnant, and that child wasn't growing right in utero, and we kind of knew something was up, and I was going to maternal fetal medicine. They couldn't quite figure out why he was so small, and he was four pounds, and he was born full term. And I'm like, something isn't right here. Well, he Mm. spent a month in the NICU, and they they were thinking it was circulatory, but they just couldn't find anything. And he had several things happening, by the way. It was just one thing. And after a month in the NICU and, you know, some second opinions and scans and whatnot, they said, all right, you know, he's grown enough. We're going to send him home. And he was home for about two weeks, and he got necrotizing enterocolitis, which is something that happens at six weeks when there's a very tiny heart defect that's not picked up. And he got sick at home, and um, he was the first, you know, my firstborn, the first person I'd ever known that may look like me or resemble me or was genetically related to me, and he died in my arms in the hospital. It was horrible. <laughs> so we waited, and we thought, well, they weren't quite sure what it was. They knew it was maybe some sort of a syndrome. They weren't quite sure. So we waited a while, and then we got pregnant again. And that one, <clears throat> I went in right away. They said, we're going we're gonna to follow this. We want to make sure this baby's okay. And so I went in for my 14, my 16-week scan. I think at four months they sent us to maternal fetal medicine and said, let's just make sure everything is okay. And I'll never forget the doctor's, the look on the doctor's face when he was looking. The technician didn't say much to me. And then the doctor came over, and he's squinting at the screen, and he's tapping, and he's fiddling with controllers, and he's asking people in the room, like, did somebody fool with the color on this? And I just, I knew, and I just died when they mm-hmm. showed the picture because this child had the same things but worse. Like, mm-hmm. the, um the heart chambers weren't differentiated. The blood was going the wrong way. There were problems with, um, you know, several organs, just the multiple things. And they basically said, this this child isn't going to make it. You've got something going on here. And um, I carried him for a couple months, and then I, I did lose him later when I was like, I don't know, not quite full. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, that wasn't a lot of fun either. <laughs> and in the interim, after I knew something was wrong, I said, that is it. Like, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting information. Because they told me that what they thought it was is a Mediterranean illness called um, either pentalogy of Cantrell or X-linked midline ventral defects. And <clears throat> what they had said was, there, there, at the time, there was no blood test for this. It was confirmed through medical history, and that if this is indeed what was going on, there was a 50% chance of any boy I conceived carrying this, and it's 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 passed down as through the mother. It's X-linked. So I thought, oh God, <laughs> I got to get a medical history. So my um, the head of clinical genetics wrote letters for me. The um, obstetrician wrote letters for me. We petitioned the judge twice in Illinois who said no both times, which was unbelievably frustrating because we have a right to this information anyway. And on top of it, I felt like, you know, this was kind of important because it dictated to me decisions that I would be making in the future about having children and how I would go about it. And we wrote to the French consulate. Um, The French consulate said they would help, but only if the request came from the courts. The courts in Chicago said they would help, but only if the request came from the French consulate. <laughs> like, what am I, top liver? Like, this is my life. Oh, but right. um, I tried the doctor's office and got the usual responses about, you know, files on fire. You know, there was a fire in the basement, and the fires are gone, and I heard something else about a flood. You know, who knows? I contacted the hospital and got shot down. I contacted the lawyer who handled it, who t- talked to the guardian ad litem, and that didn't work either. Um, I found the people she stayed with. I hired a, a private investigator. I was just doing everything I could. 
And then um, about three months after that child passed in June, I, you know, I had be, I had been dealing with a social worker handling my case file um, at social services in in Chicago, and. When I called back, she was out. I don't know who I got, but I was sobbing, and I had had it, and I was frustrated. And that person said, like, just hold on for a minute. And she went and looked at the file, and she said, I'm not your usual social worker. You don't know me. You never heard this from me. She's overseas. I'm just giving you the information. And she did. And so in the meantime, I had been with um, – I was going to an, a support group, for an adoption support group for Search and Reunion, and – Someone who was an expatriate over in France at the time had told me to call the red line, call the French police. So I did. I called them with the information, and they found someone who spoke English, and I sobbed to them about what was going on. Within four days, they'd found her. They did a driver's license search. And she freaked out. I think he had called he called her house, and her daughter answered. So he said, this is someone from, you know, this is a police officer, and I'm calling about a parking ticket she had. Of course she didn't have a parking right. ticket. But he said, you know, have her call me back. She called back, and I guess she was beside herself and said she did not want to know anything. She did not want any contact. They would never call her again. And there were two French policemen dealing with her, and basically the detectives, and basically they said, look, like, she needs this information. And they, they talked her down to the point that she couldn't do it at her house, you know, when her family was around. Um, she said, I'll call you back tomorrow. And <laughs> she was calling back from a payphone in the next town over, so no one would see her. And this went on for quite some time. But she, um, they did get her to answer any question, the medical history questions from the geneticist, because I had faxed all that stuff over. Um, and she just basically said, you know, she prays for me. There can't be any contact. It's through God. We'll meet again in heaven, this, that, and the other. And then she called back two weeks later, I guess, because it was probably on her conscience, and right. talked to the police officer, and he said, you know, would you call once a week? And that was in June. And she said she would, but then I heard nothing until, like, the very end of July. And I had a friend who speaks fluent French call <clears throat> and talked to the police officer, and she had said, this is like at the end of July, she wanted no contact, there was no message for me. Um, I had sent over pictures um, and some different a package, a little package to the French policemen, and I had sent cookies to them from a bakery in France, and you know, <laughs> thanking them. And mm-hmm. She, um, you know, she wanted no contact. She refused to come see the pictures, and I said to them, "Okay, but I want you to know, by this time, we had had a little surprise. I was, you know, of course, oh, honey, it's fine, and I ended up pregnant, which was a, a nice surprise, but I was a little scared as well, actually terrified." And so we heard nothing, and I just had decided, all right, like, I'm never going to hear from her again, and this is okay. And, of course, you know, I was upset at first. because I I had mixed emotions because I was in the throes of, like, losing two children. I didn't have a lot of time to deal with her. So part of me was like, how can she not want to know about the baby she gave away? And part Mm -hmm. of me was like, I can't deal with this right now. And then at the end of July, I was like, fine, like, whatever. And then um, out of the blue, September, she calls, and the French police who called me, and all this time she's calling from a phone booth in the next town over, and said um, she wanted a one-to-one relationship, no husbands involved, and she wanted to talk once a month through the police officers. And so we sent some letters back and forth, just, you know, like um, she wouldn't give me any pictures or names of her kids or anything. But it was just, you know, she wanted to know more about me. I had questions for her. And so we went back and forth through this poor French police officer who was very patient. And then um, 
that March, so that that was in like September. In that March, um, I had my baby on the eighth, and on the tenth, she called and cut off contact again, and that one did me in. And I think it was mostly, you know, I just had a baby, and I was thinking to myself, you know, here I am, like holding my baby. I'd come home, you know, struggling with the fact that, you know, how could you give away a child in the first place? Because you mm-hmm. know, maybe this small part of me just didn't quite understand the story that I had been told initially. Um, which was, I think all I had been told was that she was in her 20s and she was engaged and they just weren't ready for children, so they just didn't want to have a baby, so they gave me away. Like, that's all I had been told. And um, that didn't quite make sense to me, but anyway. um, Right. So she cut off contact. That one I remember because I was hormonal, I just had a baby. That one, I just let out this, like, primal howl. That upset me. Yeah. And I thought, I can't deal with this. Like, I'm done with this mess. You can't be fooling me like this. And then, of course, she found, on the 31st, I got another phone call explaining the no contact because apparently she felt, felt guilty about it. Yeah. And I'm like, whatever at this point. And then yeah. um, in April, April 27th, she called and said she changed her mind and <laughs> that she was going to stand up to her hus- husband and tell her children. <laughs> it was just like, You're like oh I just God. couldn't even process, like, whether or not this was going to happen or work. And part of me was like, I just need to break this off to protect myself because right. I had just had it by that time. But um, what happened was we did end up, um, my husband and my son and I, when he was, like, eight months old, we did go over and um, we stayed at a friend's beach house in Laval. She's like, she and her best friend and my husband and I and my son – and we stayed with her for a few days. At this point, her children still did not know. Her husband was still against it. Um, but I guess, you know, he said as long as the kids aren't hurt. And I've got, I got all the normal, like, he was afraid I would want money. He's afraid what I – he was looking into. He had contacted a lawyer to see what I would be entitled to in terms of how to protect inheritance and, oh, just all kinds of stuff. And um, and she had even said, you know, along the way, things like we have we have nothing in common except blood, you know, this – there's nothing in common. There's no sensing going on with this, and and um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was really it, she. It was really hard. It was up and down and up and down. And she, she had said, um, "What else? Just different things like." Isn't it amazing you know, how how money always comes into this? That somehow we've got to be after money. I mean, that just always shocks me. That well, and the, the thing is. Like, like we knew. I mean, because growing up, I knew nothing. And part of that, there's been a silver lining now that I'm older. When I was younger, I, it really bothered me. But now that I'm old, I mean, I walked around thinking, was she a prostitute? Was she someone who was on drugs? Was she? Um, because I didn't find out about um, being 20s and, and um, engaged until I was a teenager and had, at that point, I did have a crying jag at home. Cause I was like, I need to know something. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was, you know, you go through that phase of identity and you're trying to figure out who you are and I I just went through um a, I had about a two week pretty rough period there and that's the information that I got at that point but you know <laughs> I didn't know boo about her I had no idea they were wealthy so anyway yeah and she had said a lot of things and um I had to look at it from I had to go back and look at it in terms of the trauma that she had went through so when I right. looked back at all the notes and things that she had said, what came together was <clears throat> she had been um, fresh out of boarding school, I guess, and or a boarding, you know, she'd gone to boarding school and she'd boarded to college, 
and she met my birth father, who was apparently quite charming, and didn't know what was happening to her when she got pregnant. And no one knew except her mother, and her mother, I guess they decided that she would fly back out. She had been over here for as a foreign exchange student, I guess. She contacted the family she had stayed with and asked if she could come back out, and they hosted her. And the thing is, she was... They, she was sworn to secrecy that she would never tell anyone that this had happened, that she would never bring it up again. And um, it sounded like, you know, they really told her, like, this is the best for this child. And they, she didn't, they told her, like, don't bother naming her. It's not your right. It was very drilled into her that she was not to disrupt this new family and that after she signed, she could not change her mind and that it would be, you know, not in my best interest to keep me. And, um, you know, they just really told her, like, this is, you know, you've, you've done something and you need to do what's right is basically how it was put to her and, and, and just forget sure. about it and move on. And her mother had sworn her to secrecy that before she could go home, she was not to speak of it, even when she got home. Like, it was never brought up and she was never allowed to talk about it, which had to be hard. And in the middle of all this, her father um, had a stroke while she was over here, and by the time she got home, he'd passed away. So uh. I think she, you know, she had a lot going on at once there. But, um, you know, her, her family had that hold over her where it was like she, she could not talk about this or say anything. Um, she was told what to do. Right, right. So um, she moved on, and she said, you know, she had no – I think she moved on, but she was kind of frozen inside in some ways. Right. And she just didn't want to go back there initially. Um, so, I, you know, when I, I try like to look at it – that, you know? I'm sorry. A lot of the moms were told just you're not you're not to disrupt these. I mean, at the time we were children, we're not now, obviously, but they were told not to disrupt our lives. And so, mm-hmm. when we go to try to contact them, their initial instinct or their initial thought is no, be, not because they don't mm-hmm. want to contact us or be contacted. It's they are told no, you know, so they immediately put that wall right back up because they're scared. Yeah. yeah. She her yeah. her question was, if you're contacting me, you know, didn't you get enough love and don't you understand the difference between an adopted child and a natural child? And, you know, she really um figured that it must be because I didn't love my parents or they didn't love me enough. She was afraid maybe it hadn't gone well. Like, that's not it at all. <laughs> it just I think doesn't mean I don't love my parents. Yeah. Right. Like Right. I need medical information, first of all. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, it, it was hard, but I look back and I, I had to really think about um, that the rejection, like you said, it wasn't about me. And when I look at other adoptees who were rejected, I see what wonderful people they are and how much value they add to the world, and it would never occur to me to feel like they deserved it or they earned right. it or anything like that. Right. And so I have to tell myself, you know, I see all these wonderful people whose birth parents did not want, or you know, first parents did not want any contact. They don't know what they're missing out on. They're not making a judgment on that person. They've never met them. Sometimes, right. you know, they've met them and then cut it off. That has nothing to do with them either. This is about the first parent's trauma. And I thought yeah. to myself, well, if I would look at someone else and say, oh, my gosh, you know, what a crazy person for rejecting you, you know, why wouldn't I give myself that same that same credit. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I wish we could all see, you know, how beautiful we are inside and that it it really isn't about us. 
um, because the birth mothers have their stories too. And the other thing I had to do was really reassess my expectations of, you know, if you're wondering your whole life what this person is going to be like and have a certain set of, like, what you might think happens, it might not line up with reality. And just to allow her to be human and, and think about, you know, accept her for who she is and think about what's realistic to expect of someone because I don't know whether, you know, even though they're older than us and, you know, they're quote-unquote uh, the parent in certain ways, it's, um, it's, it doesn't mean that they don't have their own things going on. So. Right, right. Well, and there's so much, there is so much going on. I think, you know, we have we have all have so much different lives and again they were told you know so many different things and not to not to contact us to move on and i think that's what happens when we go to the legislators to to get access and all of that then they were told and they have that one set of myths that they follow that you know they were shamed and you know they they don't want to be contacted. It's not that they don't want to be contacted. They wanted to be, you know, hidden at that time and that that time frame from everybody, but not from their children as adults. Yeah. You know, there's there's a whole yeah. set. It's all garbled into one big, massive yeah. tumor, and that's the only thing I yeah. can call it. It's just yeah. this mass misinformation and. You know, to sort it out, you can't even do it because as many different people there are, that's how many different thoughts and processes there are, and we can't do it. So everyone has, you know, different things and different thoughts, and, you know, each situation is different. And, you know, there's so many good books and so many good, you know, thoughts and everything, but, you know, we can't. We have to take each situation as it is, you know. Yeah, but, but you've got the same token, you know, and, uh, no one would have to, no one needs to have to go what I go through what I went through to qualify for that information. It's our information. We should be able to have that. Exactly. Um, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but it was. Yeah. I have to admit that it was very frustrating to even be in this stage and still not be allowed to have it. Like that just drove me nuts. And we had already, you know, sent blood off to Israel and all kinds of stuff. And and my birth mother took an additional year to come around and tell her children. It took her quite a while. Um, and it just, you know, she was on her own timetable, and um, it was hard for me because, you know, intellectually when I'm in a good spot, I would understand what was going on, but I think there's still that part of us that remembers being that tiny baby (laughs) that is like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's a balance. Um, Yeah. I think there – I know today there's still times where I – there were spots in there that – information didn't get to me in the way it should have and I still haven't processed it all the way because I don't think I don't think my mom knew how to give it to me you know I mean mm-hmm. she she didn't know herself I don't think who my birth father was and I'm sure there are quite a few moms out there you know that don't know that so you know as well as I do you know a set of our friends, there's, you know, I think two or three of us that are just now finding out who our birth fathers are. But most of us have now, through thankfully through DNA, have found out, you know, who our birth fathers are for sure now. Mm-hmm. Thankfully through DNA we know that. But that process has taken a long time to come to fruition. And 
wow, it is really difficult. I mean, you know, we've waited a long time to get those answers, and it has really been stressful. And, you know, to have to wait to find that out, you know, most of us should know that answer when we find our mothers, you know. But sometimes our moms don't know who that person is. Well, <laughs> or whatever sometimes they reason do, and is. it's so sensitive, they don't want to discuss it. I mean, it took my birth right. mother quite a while and I mean I haven't made contact with his family but I've I think I've seen them on Facebook I think I know who they are mm-hmm. um, and I haven't reached out yet just because I'm not in a place where I'm quite ready for that um, right. but you know it's um, yeah it was a rocky start and I think you hear one adoptee story you hear one adoptee story and they I, they all have ups and downs and it's just like in a way like many other relationships in our lives but it's definitely, you know, there was that definite feeling of um, filling a gap of knowledge, like filling that void was definitely very helpful, and establishing that communication was 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 very helpful. Um, right. It can be quite healing in in a lot of ways, and create complexities in other ways. Right, right. I think I think knowing both sides is definitely whether it's just on a you know a slight level or not. I think. And just knowing who the person is for me, you know, just to have that answer finally, you know, because the reunions for me were, you know, almost 25 years apart. And and just knowing the person is, is I think, a closure in of itself, you know. But yeah, yeah. knowing the people, that's even better. I mean, and sometimes well, it doesn't happen for everybody, but, you know. It's just, I mean, I look a lot like my birth mother and my oldest son looks a lot like my half-brother, and my younger son looks a lot like my birth father, <laughs> having seen a picture. Oh, wow. I lucked out. I lucked out at my uh, half-sister's wedding. Um, one of the guests there was, um, the couple there was were best friends with my birth father and still saw his, she still see his widow every week for cards. <laughs> but it's funny because people around know, but no one is willing to, to broach the subject with his widow. Um, and it's still kind of a big secret, and I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to handle that yet. But at least I know, you know, I have a contact who knows them, um, and they won't get, like, I have no first names for her kids, nothing, but um, I think I'm figuring out who they are. And and there is there is some sense of, of peace in that. Well, and, you know, sometimes I think we, I mean, I think it's good that we are sensitive to their needs. I don't think that we should by any means be crass or but I think sometimes we're oversensitive about that. I think that and sometimes over there I think that they're they're a little more um you know, th- there's a little more looseness in that ability. You know what I mean? They're not as, you know, families aren't as traditional over there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So there might not be as as a worrisome thing for you to broach that subject. It's not as it's not like over here. I think that you may find it not quite as worrisome as a subject to to go over there. So maybe 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 it is, maybe know. it is. I mean it was really you know, but with my you know my my birth mother um married into her father was a doctor and um in Paris and they she married into a very well known family and her brother in law who recently passed away was Jean Philippe Duan, who worked under Jacques Chirac and was in charge of the branches of the military. And so right. there was still that sense of, 
like her son, my birth mother's son, wanted to tell family members, and um, he handled that, and there was blowback because it's such a highly, um, right, you know, politically connected family. <laughs> right. So that part is, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I just hope for you that you can. I mean, I was just feel like time is not on our side. I mean, we don't start out with time on our side. I mean, we're we're always working backwards as far as time goes, you know. Um, you know, because like finding my birth father, he was already deceased. I mean, I was working yeah. against time the way it was, you know. Um yeah. it's it's never you know, and not that I'm saying, you know, you should go right now, go, you know, but I kind of <laughs> feel like that, you know, for you. Okay, ready, set, go. Because I just I know for us, and I never, you know, like when I've done reunions before, and I mean, I've been doing this since I was 22. I mean, I'm almost 50 years old, and I think, and I even said in those days, in the beginning, time is not on our side. I mean, you know, yeah, every birth, you know, we're working towards, you know, the end of time. I mean, we, we really have to think about, and never rushing anyone into anything. You have to do it in your own time when you feel comfortable, but... Always know that, you know, I mean, we we never have time on our side. My brother died in a car accident. He never got to meet his birth mother. He never got to know her. You know, he didn't know that. I mean, I don't even yeah. know that he really thought of searching. I'm sure if he would have known I was, he would have wanted to instantly, you know, and he would have wanted to know. That's why I found his mom. You know, so it's just about... You know, time time is just working backwards with us. You know. Yeah, I had um, when, when I asked my birth when I asked my birth mother about my my birth father, she said, "Oh, he's dead. He died in a car accident." And I thought, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> we all hear that story." But I did right. ask the French police to look into that, and they did confirm it. And he died in a car accident when I was um, fifteen. Oh man, yeah, that's just that that really bites. Yeah, that's just. That's awful, yeah. Well, his children I mean, lost him young. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an awful part. Yeah, yeah. My birth father died when he was sixty, and all of his all of his brothers are gone. He only has one sister left. He lost all of his brothers and and one sister when they were all either sixty or early sixties by the time they passed away. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not. <laughs> That's not good for me because my health takes after his size. And I'm thinking, um, I'm almost 50. <laughs> oh, no. Don't think that way. Yeah. Uh, no, but well, they, I think it's just. Yeah. But, I just yeah, think, but I I think mean, it's interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I just think, you know, you hit on something. I think um, all of us tend to, no matter what stage we're in, in reunion and, and or rejection, um, it – it it hits it crawl it crawl, creeps up on us in odd ways at odd times, and mm-hmm. intellectually we all know on one level, and then sometimes in the gut it still hits us because we still right. I think have some nonverbal memory of of that happening, so I have to like frequently remind myself that it wasn't about me and focus on what's going well when I'm in a bad place and I get triggered, um, mm. and you know just really thinking about you know you you can't you can't. I'm not going to discover any answer that might make things sound perfect. It's not going to happen. And just to talk right. back, I think, at times to that voice in my head that might say something along the lines of, you know, you weren't worth keeping, or which is what went through my mind quite a bit, having 
been given so little information when I was younger and um, really being told that I had no right to that information and I didn't need to be thinking about it or worrying about it. Um, and I, I, and my, my poor parents didn't have any training on this, and it was a private adoption. And at that point, um, you know, they lost a 10-year-old to leukemia and were told, you know, replace it, get another, have another baby as soon as you can. Well, they didn't want to try and have another son because they'd lost a, a boy. And uh, I guess the doctor taking care of my birth mother had said, I got a, a, one coming in June. If it's a girl, it's yours. And, you know, but they were given no no training on how to talk about this or how to, what's information to give or any of it. And I, I can remember seeing the discomfort in my mother's face trying to figure out what she's supposed to say. Um, it was hard. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm not, I really, even after 27 years and losing my biological mom to breast cancer, I really don't think that, um, I don't think that, that, you know, my my adoptive mom has understands it. I, I think, you know, she wants to, but I don't think she understands it, I, I you know. But, you know, that's protectiveness on her part, you know, as a sure. mother, you know, um, you know, wanting, you know, to be my mother, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can't say that, you know, how would it be as being a mom and having to share your child? But you know what? I can say I understand that because, you know, I am a, you know, a mom that has gone through divorce and I have to share my children with a stepmother. So I do get it. So, you know what? I do get it. And it does, it does hurt, you know. It's not a comfortable thing at all. So, but I do think that, you know, they did not train, you know, our parents and educate them of what to expect because they didn't know. They just well, didn't know and, that. And that know. we have, you know, that we're going to be curious, that we're going to wonder, you know, everyone else in the family has blue eyes, where did I get my green eyes? Or, you know, mm-hmm. how come I have a love of music when no one else does? Or whatever it is, I've heard multiple stories of, of people who, um you know, they, they when they search and find that information, they think, oh, I don't feel so odd now because, um, and I'm thinking of a particular person, that you, and I'm not going to mention her name, but you, you know her too, that was very outdoorsy and very sports area and loves the water, and no one in the mm-hmm. family group that she grew up with was. And so mm-hmm. I think for a lot of this, you know, there's a lot to be said for just having that information and that connection for better self-understanding and self-acceptance, and it helps. Like my, um, my, I found out my birth mother is dyslexic. Well, my, my older son had some issues with that, and I thought, where did that come from? You know, what's this about? Right. Because you sit there thinking, did I, did I eat something wrong during pregnancy? What happened here? And right. no, really, no. So I think you know all of that information is is important to us, and it's important to our our sense of identity and um, to our peace of mind in, in a lot of ways. And and my my mother certainly never saw this coming and never um, foresaw the day that I would need the information or that I would have any interest in searching. But I basically said to her, you want grandkids or not? Like, this is what i got to do. <clears throat> and um, ah. But it's tough, and I think 
it just takes, you know, on our better days when, we're, when we can do it, an immense amount of, of patience and forgiveness and allowing people to be who they are. And it's not easy. It is not easy. But I think um, it teaches us a lot about relationships and boundaries and, and um, just, you know, how to love people and just even love them through their, their tough times. Well, you just hit on a on a huge point, I feel like, because you saying um, be who you are, I feel like, especially for me, sometimes I wonder who that is. Who Who am I? Because I feel like we always are these chameleons. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like we really are, we have to be this this different person all the time, you know? Um, Self-preservation. Yeah, we have to level this. with self-preservation. Uh, yeah, I mean, are we? Who are we? Sometimes, you know. Well, and a lot of it was I. I can remember thinking, okay, the first set of people didn't want me around. Maybe I did something wrong. Am I going to? How badly I should screw up before these people are going to kick me out? You know. So I towed the line in every way because I didn't. You know, it's that I don't want to be kicked out again. So. You know, yeah. and I chuckle about it now. It wasn't funny then, but and it's funny because you you know until I was older and came into contact with these adoptee groups, you don't have anybody else to discuss that with and to normalize it and understand that you know we're having normal reactions to an abnormal situation, and that it's all of this makes perfect sense given what we've experienced, but our parents didn't have the training or understanding um, to deal with it. Right. Yeah, they and I mean, you know, now um I I I stumbled onto a um an Instagram page the other night. Um and I don't know if you all are Instagrammers or not. And um it's it's I'm trying I'm trying to think of her name. I'll think of it here in a minute. But like I said, it was just I stumbled upon it and it was a great page. And if I can think of it here in a minute, I will. And um, she adopted, and somebody had said adoption. And, you know, the minute we hear all of us who are really aware um, hear adoption and go, it's like a record skipping, and we go, you know, and we go, what? And our ears pop up like Scooby-Doo. And I was like, uh, oh, no. And I thought, you know, because everybody's, you know, usually really, aware of it, and they go, what? And I thought, oh, no. So I followed her, and I went, okay, I wonder who this person is and who they're like. And so I went and listened, and she was doing a live, um, you know, thing about, you know, talking about her husband, and they were talking, you know, about adoption. They were really being, you know, just totally upfront about everything. And she was saying, somebody said, oh, and they were, I thought they were being serious at first, and I was like, what? They were saying about love. Oh, love is enough. And I thought, oh, they're not really going to say that, are they? They're not going to believe that that love is, is all you need. And they were they were not. They were being serious that it wasn't. They were saying, you know, no, love isn't all you need. And that, you know, there's so much more training and that, you know, children, you know, need, you know, there's anger, that there's grief, 
and I was oh, I was so thrilled. And what it started out as I'd followed it was a it was actually like a Nordstrom type blog, and that girl is the one who had mentioned the other girl and a woman actually. And the little boy they adopted was from Haiti, and this little boy I guess had screamed and screamed until he couldn't scream anymore. And, you know, I'm not sure the circumstances of why the adoption happened. And then what she had said was that her, and I honestly, I actually smiled because I evidently her dad is an adoptee. And that, Uh-oh. yeah, so she said she always knew she was going to adopt. Um, and I, I, I'm I'm probably even saying this wrong, so don't quote me on this. But she wanted to adopt. And I can't remember the reason. I Maybe she said that she wanted to be like her grandmother or because her grandmother adopted her dad. But anyway, the dad's an adoptee, her, her father. And anyway, so she is totally real about this, though. Um, That's good. This is, a, this is an, an adoptive mother that thinks that, you know, you go bring a baby home, and love is all you need. I mean, this is the total realness of everything. And her name is Layla Palmer. That's her name, if you guys want to follow her on Instagram. It's called The Lettered Cottage. And let me tell you, there's there's no perfection in any of this, and I'm not promoting, you know, adoption. I mean, adoption is always going to exist, but, you know... Um, it's just it was amazing to me because i i'm just so glad that there's realness in this finally that we're getting real words in adoption we're not getting fakeness and that we're going to sit down and kumbaya this and everybody's going to yeah. be okay because yeah. it's not and adoption is always going to exist because there are going to be families that can't no matter how much money we give some moms, and sometimes that's all it is. Sometimes moms just do need some financial help and yeah. a mother can can keep her child, and that is wonderful, and I think that we need to do that. I'm behind that 100%. But sometimes that isn't everything. And so when adoption has to exist, then we need to be helping these parents, you know, realize yeah. what needs to happen, and this was an example of that and this mom was saying that um the little boy was at the corner and these dogs were barking and he put his hands over his ears because he has let so much of his anger out that he couldn't stand to even hear loud dogs bark and i thought oh my gosh how must that be because he is us you know yeah i mean he is us and able to express it he doesn't have to be scared to be angry we we almost can't do that, you know. All of our stuff is rolled up inside because we weren't allowed to do that. We aren't allowed to tell people we're angry. We aren't allowed to tell people that we had a reactive attachment if we had it, even if we had it a little bit. We aren't allowed to speak those words. We're supposed to be great. I wasn't to tell anybody I was adopted at all. Right, right. I wasn't allowed to we're tell anybody. We're supposed to be thankful and grateful and all of that. And the thing is, guess what? We are sometimes, or we are all of the time. But guess what? We have those. We why can't we be angry? Why can't we be? 
Like, well, you know, every time you go to the doctor's office and you, they ask for the, the medical history and you got nothing, it's gonna yeah. it's gonna get you every time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I I do know now that there is a lot of um, a lot of offices have gone to. Um, there is a like a circle or a checkbox that says, "Are you adopted?" And you can check that. Well, okay, but that's that's not the end of the box. I mean, just because you can check that doesn't mean that that's over. I mean, just because I tell you I'm adopted, I mean, we shouldn't be satisfied with that, you know? Yeah. We should yeah. be changing that, and doctors should be advocating for adoptees to have open access and the states being able to. And so none of these doctors who are legislators should be saying that that's okay that adoptees don't have their records and don't have their their access to their you know medical history, you know, doctors should be appalled at that. Yeah. That's not okay. You know? Well, and I know the ones that I deal with would would love for people to have their their background information and have their history. Um, right. And I think you know you can't conflate it. It's a civil rights issue, and yeah. you can't conflate that with the separateness of the choice of whether or not to have a relationship. That's a separate right. issue, and I don't don't appreciate um, being classified as someone who might be threatening to someone, like a stalker. I mean, we're, we're, I don't know what the the fear is because we're grown adults. Right. Right. What's that about? I mean, seriously. I mean, why is that even, even in the, in the game? I mean, why is that even issued somewhere that, that we could become like they act like we're like some type of a monster or something that yeah, I mean we are your flesh and blood, dear goodness sakes. I mean, we came from you. I mean, since when did that become a scary thing? I mean, I don't Well, get... I mean, and I I can clearly remember sitting this oh, I forgot to mention this part. I can remember clearly sitting in the geneticist's office and he asked me, "Are you Amish?" I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and then he said, uh, I hate to ask this, but there, is there any chance that you and your husband could be related? Or, like, are you cousins or anything? And I was like, I almost died. Thinking, like, and then I got mad, thinking, this is absolutely insane. But I would even have to be, that, that 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 could even be a possibility. And you know what it's like. I mean, just, yeah. like, I know better now, but it's so funny because, not funny, it's kind of creepy. But, you know, you worry. Like, you don't want to date somebody who <laughs> could be your genetic cousin or half sibling or and my younger son's girlfriend for a long time I mean we we went on vacation last year and people kept asking if they were siblings and part of thought like how creepy is that Um, yeah yeah how creepy is that because if I didn't have my records I would be panic stricken going uh, you can't date her. You both have the same nose. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it, it, no kidding. That's what drives me insane. And, yeah. and every time, and for a long time, people would say, oh, you look like just somebody I know. And you'd think, oh, my gosh, could that be could that be someone who's related? I mean, you just don't know. Um, and it, yeah. it crops up, and I don't think people recognize how often those things do crop up because we're just told, like, and especially, you know, in a, in a same-race adoption because we're not, I mean, it's not, as evident, it's not stamped on our foreheads necessarily, but um, I don't think people realize how often we do encounter things no. that are unsettling. That's the scary part. I know that is really the scary part. And you know, I'm not going to mention names on here because obviously, but you know, some people we know have done DNA, and family members are related. I'm 
and that that does happen, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's not out of the realm. And living in a town like I live in, you know, um, people have dated siblings. I mean, they were half siblings, but um, that's not okay. And no, and when they that. place, you know, babies, they place them throughout a state. That's not far enough, really. Throughout a yeah. state isn't far enough because then they, you know, they may move, but they can move back closer to where the other siblings then live. So, you know, and then we've got genetic sexual attraction, which people are so not inclined to talk about. So GSA is real, and you are attracted to someone who is, you know, familiar to you, and there's something familiar about, you know, what, you know, you're looking like someone, and that's just the reality of it. And I remember attending a workshop like that, you know, and thinking, oh, my goodness. I didn't even know that was real. I didn't even know there was such a thing. So, you know, that leads me to kind of what I want to talk about, which, you know, I will shamelessly plug workshops and (laughs) conferences. Go for it. Go for it, right? But, I mean, that it's true because I didn't even know conferences existed. I didn't even know workshops existed. And um, so we did one last, well, this year, but not last year, but this year. And we're going to do one in 2018 because Indiana's records are, we can do the countdown, 333 days away. Um, yay. As, yay. So uh, we are going to do one in Indianapolis. We moved it to the big city. We moved it from Bloomington to Indy. And you got to come uh, to this one this year, and I was so excited. So I am, like, thrilled that you got to be here. So I know we did. It was wonderful. Well, I am so glad you came. And we did two DNA workshops, and so I don't know, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know that you oh. got to you know, go to some yeah. of them, and I don't I know did. if there was one that you really liked. And again, you don't have to say which one, but just like oh. what you really like liked about it, or I you know, just was- I can't say enough. It was just probably the best conference I've been to. Um, not only was it well run, but it was there was enough time in between and and afterwards that we got to process with other adoptees what we heard about in a talk or a workshop. And, you know, the workshops were wonderful. I went to the second DNA workshop, and we actually had a find in the middle of the workshop because the guy's example was directly tied to someone else's tree. It was wild. Um, yeah. It was a real-time find. Um, so the DNA workshop was excellent. I mean, they were excellent. Uh, Rhonda Churchill's talk was just mind blowing. I mean, the daughter, the granddaughter of Winston Churchill, and the FBI's involvement in that whole I love that I crazy love it. story. Yeah, oh. and um, Brian Stanton's play was just so moving. Just there were so many good workshops. I just can't I just, even. His play just. I mean, I've seen it. You know, I don't know how many times I've seen. It. I can't. I don't know if it's. I just saw it once before hours or not, but I can't remember. But even though I'd seen it, I it literally it just I was in tears. I mean, I just yeah. it just hits you. Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, and and to have somebody else verbalize things that maybe a first year attendee may not have the words for. 
Yeah. You know, to give language to what they're feeling is so um it's so helpful and it's so yeah. I guess it just makes people feel more validated. And uh, you know, we had the best time even after the workshops were over because they were t- there was time in the evening. We went down to the lobby and I think there was like 25 of us. We ordered pizza. We must have sat there for 6 hours and people <laughs> just went from table to table and chatted and processed and talked and shared. And it was just a very wonderful healing thing altogether. And people talked about what they'd heard in the workshop and shared about what they, we got to swap notes, like I missed that one, what was that one about? And, um, you know, I heard Deborah Baker's was wonderful. I didn't get in to see her. Um, yeah. Just a lot of, of really, uh, it was just wonderful. And it was, I, I think people left feeling very, um, I think, uplift, even though it's a lot of heavy stuff, probably very um, validated and in a way uplifted and Sometimes you feel like kind of like a weight's been lifted because you've been able to discuss with someone who gets it. And you don't have to explain it <laughs> yeah. times and just share and get stuff off your chest with someone who can look at you and like, oh, yeah, I know, been there. Um, the joys and the frustrations and all of it rolled into one because um, it's all part of life. So it was, it was beautiful. I'm planning on coming back next year. I think that's what I think that's what we really hope to do next year and I think it's going to be it's going to be bigger. I think there's going to be more to um more to offer. I think this year it was not that it was small by any means. I think we had just a little over 80 people, I think. But I think there's going to be, you know, not quite double or maybe there will be double people. I don't know. We'll wait and see. But I think that um you know, it'll be closer to the airport, which cuts down a little bit of the, you know, the travel time. But I think yeah, that, nice. yeah, I think that, you know, even though I've talked to, you know, you know, three or four of us that, you know, were planning it, I think really what matters is really it's just the, it's like you said, ordering the pizza and the just the the camaraderie and being able to chat with you know, each other and, you know, just sitting down and not having to explain yourself. I mean, we all get it. And um, just was being able to, to, yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of options, but there was enough downtime for people just to have the time to connect. And that was, that was really, I think that was really a big, a nice, a nice part of it. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, I mean, for me, because, you know, obviously for planning it's a little harder, but even even for me, I enjoyed it. I mean, I just, just to be able to see everybody enjoy themselves and, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I really was emotional. I just, uh, I just getting to see everybody connect with each other and um, yeah. I just felt like there were more than three quarters of everybody that I, I felt like I had, you know, personally touched everybody in that room, maybe maybe more than that even. You know, it was really just a special time, and I think this year is going to, or next year I guess it will be, will, you know, be even more that way with Indiana's records opening, and um, hopefully we get well, even more people there, you know. I think I think each time you can peel off a different layer, and each time something different strikes a chord with you. And you can process yeah. something different. And so, um, because that wasn't my first conference ever, but and I was very, um, I was very emotional when I was there. But I, I left in very good shape. Let's put that right. Way. Just very, just thrilled with the whole experience. 
Well, I think you and I both have attended, um, you know, bigger works or bigger conferences, but I think this one for us, I think both you and I are probably, you know, a little hungry for one, and I think the there were there was a not like I'm bragging on myself, I don't mean it that way, but there were good quality people there too, and you know, we all really like wanted to see each other, and you know, we really wanted to spend you know quality time and. Um, you know, like again, Brian's play was so good, and you know, oh, and I guess we need to, we need to tell talk about Patty too. I mean, she threw in her readings from her book, and yes, and Rhonda's. I mean, it was funny because somebody had said, I can't remember who it was now. Somebody said, "Where did you find her?" Me, talking about Rhonda, and mm-hmm. you know, I had met Rhonda, I think, in 2010, maybe, and I mean, her story is just you know, amazing. So if anybody, you know, hasn't heard uh, Rhonda Churchill's story, it's the fifth and final name, which Rhonda's been on my podcast before, but I need to have her back on because, honestly, she's got this dry sense of humor that you don't expect, you know, yeah. the the little, like, quips that she does. And, you know, she <laughs> when she it's talks fun. about her mom and, you know, mom, did you not – think that was something when the FBI came into the house and you know she's like mom did you not think that that might be something you know but I mean you know I mean you know her story just is and she had even had on those um like converse tennis shoes that had Winston's like silhouette with a little cigar sticking out of his mouth you know she yeah she's really a a hoot so she was a lot of fun I had breakfast with her yeah, she's she's really really funny, and um, but yeah, so we've got lots of things planned, and um, yeah, there'll be there'll be some really really good good things coming up. We're going to announce it. Um, should be the beginning of next week. Our newsletter will come out. We're waiting on just finalizing a few things. Um, our our keynotes are signing their things and. Uh, yeah, we've got our entertainment set up, and it'll be really good, I think. So, yeah. well, I am so glad you came on because I I wanted to have you on my podcast for a while, and um, and I'm glad for you because I know there's a lot of people with you know medical history stuff, and yours definitely was a doozy. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a word for it. Yeah, yeah you know, for sure. you just have to. It's a daily. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm going to be better. I'm not going to be bitter. Yeah, I'm going to be better. And a lot of, a lot of self-talk, the, you know. You're definitely the definitely the spokesperson for that, for sure. And when but thanks for rough, coming on. And um, yep. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna definitely. Well, maybe we'll do a sequel to this after the conference, and we'll come on and talk about more stuff. So. Oh, that'd be great. All right, you guys. Thanks for being on. And um, thanks, Michelle, for being on. And you guys. Go to Indiana Adoptive Network and check out um, our website, and you can hear more podcasts. Um, And um, it was a great afternoon, and I hope you guys had a good day. And always, um, if you guys want to come join the conference, there will be more information, and you can uh, join our newsletter too. So, okay, you guys, have a great rest of your day. And, Michelle, thanks again for being on. And as always, you guys, guys in green lights. All right, bye, guys. Thanks for being on. Bye.